tis grace that taught my heart to fear and praise God for his kind grace. Find your way to uh, Ruth. We're going to be looking at Ruth again. We'll, we'll be in Romans 3 as well. We're kind of working our way through the two passages here out of the Old Testament and out of the New Testament. And uh, we'll read a little portion here from Ruth in a second. I just want to ask the Lord to help us all to be able to see and hear with, with God's grace. Oh Lord, we open your word, your holy word. This amazing gospel word from Genesis to Revelation. As we stood so many enemies, men of this world who would destroy it, Satan's undermining our confidence in it, our knowledge of it. Oh God, I pray you might quicken our hearts today. God, open our eyes and strengthen your people, convict your people. Lord, convert those who would need to be converted. We we pray for your grace. In the name of Christ the Savior, we pray again, Lord. Ruth, chapter 2. Ruth, chapter 2. Joshua judges Ruth. We're studying this. We're we're looking at this. It's um, it's not a it's not a total change of subject from uh, Romans chapter three. It's just meant to um, help us understand words that that we hear all the time. We we kind of know these words, but there's some words that really need to be fleshed out. There's some words that really need to. Have our attention so that we can come to a deeper understanding of uh, of justification, and uh, in particular today, redemption is what we're going to be looking at. So Ruth chapter two, just to take you back here a little bit of where we were at last week. I'll start at verse 1. There was a relative of Naomi's husband. Remember, Naomi had changed her name to Mara. Her husband's dead. His name was Elimelech. There's a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. And nobody has met Boaz in the story as of yet. It's kind of interesting that the the man's name is mentioned here at this point uh, in the text. But it goes on to say, so Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, now Ruth and, and the other woman who were married to Naomi's daughters-in-law, Naomi had two sons, they're dead. The daughter-in-laws survived, and the one daughter-in-law has gone back to her people of Moab, but Ruth stayed with her. Ruth is a Moabitess who is with Naomi back in the in the country of Naomi again. It says, Ruth, the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. That word favor there might say grace in your translation. And it's a, 
It's an interesting little picture of Ruth's dependence on on providence, on, on God's providence to favor her as she goes and, and seeks food for the day. And so Naomi said to her, Go, my daughter. She left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant, who is in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? So the servant, who was in charge of the reapers, answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. Pause there for just a second up to verse 7. A couple things that that you can just uh, notice here. It says that um, Boaz came, and in uh, in verse 3, he she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz there, and it wouldn't be uncommon for there to be a huge, huge valley of, of fields in an area. I'm not positive this is the case for Boaz, Boaz's field, but... I know where we used to live in different parts of Asia, there might be a massive paddy field and, and different owners would own sections of them. It'd be so big, uh, an owner would own this plot of it. So this is how I understand Boaz comes to his part of the field and it might be um, a huge area of fields all butted up together there. So that's a, a possibility there for Boaz. And Boaz is a man who obviously has a, 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 a genuine fear and respect of God and, and the people who work for him as well know him to be a man like that. We see his blessing to them and, and their returned blessing uh, to him. So verse uh, 8, Boaz said to Ruth, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap. Go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should... Take notice of me, since I am a foreigner. Now, don't lose your place here in Ruth, but but now flip back to the uh, book of Romans, chapter 3. If you've got a bookmark, you're going to want to mark one or the other of these places because we'll be be looking back and forth here. But Romans chapter 3, in verse 25 is the place where we find justification and redemption. And that's why we've gone back here to the book of Ruth, to have a look at justification and redemption, redemption in particular. So let's uh, 
Let's see if, if, if reading through Romans here and then studying Ruth can help us understand how it is that God can render the, the judicial sentence of just to a man. It really ought to open our eyes to the love of God with a careful study of this. I think you're going to have a, a you should have a real wonderful appreciation and the love of God after looking at this with a little bit of care. So where, where we begin at here is uh, chapter 3, verse 25. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All, everybody, man, woman, child, every every nation, every tribe, every every people, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And, and verse 24, rapidly shifting the, the tone or the the idea in the book of Romans, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sin that are past through the forbearance of God. So again, we... We run into justification there at verse 4, and, and Christians know this word so well. I, I think, at least on, on the surface, we know the word justification. I don't think any of you would deny it. But this is what makes it a little bit difficult for you and I to understand the deep meaning that is un, underneath the word justification and, and underneath what it takes for justification to take place. So saving justification, saving justification is built on redemption. The two things go together in terms of eternal life, in terms of salvation. You'll see this in verse uh, 24 very plainly. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption. Justification is something that takes place through redemption. The two things are, are, are tied together, like twins almost. So justification is the thing that when you stand before God in the courtroom and your day is coming, you guys know the day of, of your coming to this day is so much closer than you realize. Not a one of you is ready for the day. It comes, and, and when the day comes, I know every single one of us is going to be going, wow, why didn't I, and why did I? It comes, and, and it's difficult to be ready for this day. And one of the crucial things that we want to have ready for the day is properly understanding justification properly understanding redemption because if we don't get it, if we don't get it, then we can't understand how to rest in it and we cannot understand how to explain it. So justification is what we must have in the final day before God. It's the thing that will render, uh, uh, if, if I can say it so simply, an innocent verdict to you. The fact is, is that all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And, and you all know this in some degree. As, as we grow in the Lord, we, we know it more and more critically. We know it more and more deeply that we have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
And so this, this need for righteousness, this need for justification should be ever more and more clear in our, in our understanding. You need justification. You need righteousness. Because when the day comes, if, if you don't have it, you will not enter into eternal life. And on your way there, if you don't have it, you have no confidence that you can have eternal life. You must know how you're going to have redemption and justification. It involves Redemption involves one needing to be redeemed. You and I need to understand our need for redemption. It involves a redeemer who is qualified to redeem. And, and the story in Ruth helps us get that. It helps us understand how the Redeemer must meet certain qualifications. So redemption needs the one who needs to be redeemed, and it needs the one who is qualified to redeem. And he must also have the capital to redeem. That is, the Redeemer must be of the proper relationship to the one needing redemption. He must desire to do the redeeming and he must have the capital to pay what is required to accomplish the redemption. Or redemption cannot take place. We see all these things showing up here in the book of Ruth. I think we've looked at Psalm 49.8 a couple, two or three times in the last couple of weeks. Psalm 49.8 says... The redemption of their souls is costly. Does that ring a bell? Do you remember reading that verse? The redemption of their souls is costly. God's justice, that is the just nature of God, His justice, and the law the, the law and justice go together, don't they? You can't separate law and justice. God's justice and the law that gives the, the, the dimensions and the contours to his justice and your sinfulness, my sinfulness, are a perfect recipe for eternal loss. God's justice, his, his relentless perfection of justice, and the nature of what the law says is just and unjust. And your sinful nature are such a combination of things that it is a recipe for your eternal lostness. And that is what we should be realizing in studying Romans 1 and 2 and 2 and a half and 3 and 3 and a half. We, we get this sense of this reality. John 8.34, the Lord Jesus says this, this brief sentence in John 8.34. Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And, and anybody with, with an ear or a brain listening to Jesus that day said, Well, what do you mean? We, we all sin. And maybe, maybe they didn't say that, but you must say that. You must say, well, well, we all sin. You know what that means? It means you're a slave to sin. That's the point of that. The Lord Jesus is saying this so that a man could hear him say that and go, wait a minute, are you saying I'm a slave to sin? And 
we should say, yeah, we're slaves to sin. Sinners obey the commands of sin. They're slaves of death because the wage of sin is death. Sinners sin because they like to. Sinners sin because they want to. This is what it means to be a slave to sin. We we prefer it. All men, good and bad, obey, listen carefully, their beneficial sins, their preferential sins. Those are the ones you obey. There are some sins that that you look at, that you hear about, that you watch, and you're like, that's sick. What's wrong with those people? But there are sins that you prefer. There are sins that you like. Men obey their beneficial and preferred and besetting sins. Do you know what a besetting sin is? The besetting sin is the one that you do over and over again and you, you're ashamed of it. You don't know why you go back to this kind of sin. Maybe it's your mouth. Maybe it's your laziness. Maybe, I, I don't know what it is. Men and women have their besetting sins. We obey them. And these are men's lostness. And ultimately, these are men's reason for hell. These are why men will go to hell. So here in our story of Ruth, Naomi has lost all of the good things in her life, all of her future hope in her life. She has actually become poor in spirit. The Lord Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. You remember why? They shall receive the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You and I must come to understand the poverty and the weight and the desperateness that sin has put on you and I in our condition as a man or a woman. We must understand our poverty. We must understand our our need this way because this, in Naomi's case, is what we see as what, what drives her to have a desire for and a longing for the Redeemer. And this is what drives and compels the sinner to long for and desire the Redeemer. If you have no sense of the weight of sin on your heart and on your life and and your enslavement to it, then you could care less if there is a Redeemer. But when we understand the the influence and and the draggingness and and the laborious, merciless that sin has on you and I, Unless we understand that, we have no interest or desire in the Redeemer. But when we see it, when we sense it, we just long for the Redeemer. And we learn to hope in the Redeemer. Naomi changed her name to Bitter. Mara is her name. She's changed her name to Mara because of how deep her loss is. What she's lost is her family inheritance. They've lost the family farm land. She's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. Last week I, I said that uh, this, this has reduced her and, and her situation to something like what you and I might call a beggar. And here's what I mean by that. There are different ways people will make a living. And in the day of Naomi, the poorest of the poor people don't farm their own land. What they would do in order to get something to eat is exactly what her daughter-in-law, Ruth, does. Somebody's working their field. You, 
as a person with none of your own means to make a living, without your own farm, without your own anything, you go find a field where they're harvesting and you hope that you will come upon a piece of land where the owner fears God and loves men enough to obey the expectation of the people of Israel that was put on them from the book of Deuteronomy. The the rule or the law of gleaning means that you can go to that field and the, the farmer would purposefully leave the edges unharvested. And he would let the poor come and pick up the little bits of uh, grain that would be on the edges of the field. And so this is what Ruth is doing in this story. They are the poor of the poor. These people are in a very, very sad and desperate situation. In some ways, I'd say they're living hand to mouth, especially early in the harvest season. Ruth 2.2 is where we uh, see... um, Ruth 2.2 is where we see that this, this is exactly what they're doing to uh, make a living in this time of the story. Let me just read that to you real quickly here. I didn't follow my own rule and I didn't put my bookmark in Ruth. Ruth 2.2. Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I might find favor. In other words, let me just go see where where fate will take me. She doesn't use the name of God here. She is a God-fearing woman at this point. She's determined to go with the God of Naomi. She says, let me go and find someone who will have favor on me. Now, I'm sure there are men, there are farmers in this culture who when they see the gleaners come, they'd run them off. I'm sure there are men like that. So you don't come near my fields. But she happened to come onto the plot of, of Boaz. So when we think about Naomi and when we think about her situation, when we look at uh, verse 113, this is another indication of the hardship of Naomi. This is another indication of her poverty, of her desperateness, of, of the sense of her of her um, need of redeemer, if you will. One uh, thirteen says, look at the very end of, uh, of the verse there where the, the sentence begins, no, my daughters. She's speaking to the two daughters-in-law who, who want to stay with her. She's saying, no, my daughters. It grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Her sense of her poverty, her sense of her neediness is directly related to what she thinks God is doing against her. She feels she's being judged. She might even feel she deserves to be judged. The passage doesn't say anything like that. But she knows she is under the judging hand of God. God's hand has gone out against her. Look at verses 20 and 21. The people in in Bethlehem greet her. They're happy to see her. They said, is this Naomi, whose whose name means uh, joy? But she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me back home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? Hard times and disappointments. This woman's hard times and disappointments have truly made her desperate. 
she sees them tied in the hand of God, you and I should always, when you are in a hard time, when things are going rough and hard for you, don't attribute them to something other than God's hand. Your trials are always designed to bring you to God. The trials are always designed for a time for you to remember God is sovereign. God is the one who ordains our days and our seasons and our wealth and our poverty. God is the one who has done these things. They are to turn your attention to God. They are to bring your heart's needs to Him. We don't see any indication in the story that this is what the effect is on Naomi yet. But hard times and trials will be a great time of proving for you. They are a time for you to be relentless in your pursuit of God and seeking answers and seeking his help. Don't be slow. Don't be slow to turn your fears to God. To express your needs to God. Don't, don't, don't be a fool and not share those things with Him. Take those things to Him. Seek Him by Christ, who is the mediator, who, who has shed blood to bring you into the presence of the Almighty. Seek God. Seek His favor. Seek His mercy. And put your cares before Him. So after Ruth's first day of gleaning, is when the Redeemer really becomes apparent to us in this story. She does uh, what I would think is a very difficult day's work, a hard day's work. It says, I, I tried to find out what the measurements are in the, in the Old Testament, and, and I, I made a rough calculation. It's about nine gallons worth of grain. So if you, any of you still drink milk, milk comes in a gallon jug. Nine of those full of this grain is how much she gathered that day. And Naomi, her mother-in-law, asked her where she had been. And uh, Ruth mentioned the name of uh, Boaz. And immediately Naomi sees that God's hand is favoring her and favoring them. Look at chapter 2, verse 19. The mother-in-law said to her, chapter 2, verse 19, where have you gleaned today, and where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. You see how glad she is that someone let her glean there. Someone let her do this, this task to get the food there. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and said, the man's name with whom I work today is his Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, This man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. One of the things that I really want to encourage you for here is your own thankfulness. Are you a, a thankful person? When, when she had this one great blessing on her life that day. She was immediately grateful and thankful. And one thing I realized as I was meditating on the passages is it might not be your default to be thankful. You might be a resentful person. You might be a critical person. You might be an unhappy person or a bitter person. And that is never the characteristic of a person whose hope is in the Lord. Hope in the Lord and be thankful. Remember how Romans 1 began. It began with a people who would not acknowledge him as God or give him thanks. 
But thank Him. Thank Him for your trials. Thank Him for your blessings. Be thankful. Thankfulness is beautiful. Criticalness and hopelessness is is ugly and is sad. Train yourself to be thankful. Naomi recognizes Boaz, whose name means in him is strength. She recognizes him as a redeemer. And there is a, a definition on the handout that I gave to you so you can see some of the stuff that I'll be speaking about now to help you understand where the Redeemer uh, comes from and, and what the idea is. I'll just go over some quick things here and tell you a little bit about the Redeemer. In Leviticus 25:48, you will see that the Redeemer is one who can redeem a relative who has had to sell themselves into slavery. And so the reason that would happen is, is you become so poor due to some unexpected circumstances. You've sold yourself into some sort of uh, uh, labor situation and uh, an immediate relative can redeem you out of that situation. And so let's say I owe Banning, you know, a thousand dollars. And so I say, OK, I'm, I'm, I'm yours until the thousand is paid off. And so I become his property. I become his servant. And my brother Randy says, I'm going to redeem you. What do, what do you still owe him? Well, Banning only pays me you know, 20 bucks a day, and so this is how much more money I, I owe. So the Redeemer would pay and, and purchase the person out of that slavery. So Leviticus 25.48 explains, introduces you to this concept of that is one of the things that the kinsman Redeemer will do. That the Redeemer is, is an immediate relative, and there's a little chain of... Uh, not chain of command, but as the relatives get further and further away, they have less and less right or obligation to redeem. But it's, it's the relatives of the person who needs redemption who is the redeemer. There's another example, Leviticus 25, verse 25, where a field may be redeemed in a similar way. If I need money, I can sell it to a friend or a relative and to get it back, that land can be redeemed. And it depends on how many years of harvest are left on it, how productive is it. That's how they would come up with the price. If I've given it over to this person for a year or two or three, they've gotten a certain amount of profit from it. There's a certain amount on it left. This is how they would make these calculations and make a redemption on a field. Deuteronomy 25, 5-10 is where... The Old Testament explains the Redeemer in regards to a surviving brother of a deceased brother. So that's the kind of Redeemer we're looking at with Ruth. Ruth had been married to Mahlon. He died. She had no children. So the rule of Redeemer applies in her case to be a man who is properly related to her deceased husband, and then that man would would marry the widow, give the widow children, and the children would take the name of the deceased man. And so it would carry on the name and the inheritance of the deceased. And so this is a way that the people of Israel would, would continue the, uh, the family's legacy and the family's inheritance in the Old Testament. So the Redeemer would marry the woman and would hopefully give the blessing of children to the marriage and in the name of the deceased brother. And then those children would carry on the name of the family. 
One other, one other work of a redeemer is he would do. It's kind of difficult to, to mix the, the two concepts together, but he would do the work of revenge. And so there's a rule in the Old Testament that if somebody accidentally kills your relative and that person who killed them, killed them accidentally, he can run to a city of refuge. An immediate relative of a survivor in that family can go after the person who killed his brother or his cousin or whatever it might have been, he can go after him and kill him and get revenge. It was it was the law of these kinds of crimes. So there wouldn't have been uh, enough witnesses. It wasn't murder. It was an accidental kind of thing. And, and we won't go into studying this here. But the Redeemer is this kinsman. He is this close relative. And it was his job to go and take care of this matter for the family. That's the last um, aspect of what what kinds of works and and duties would be done by a kinsman redeemer in the the culture here. So the main main one being is this uh, issue of redeeming land and family. Interestingly, now this is where it gets really very, very interesting, is, is as Isaiah writes and prophesies, we discover, I had it written down here, I think seven to ten times um, Isaiah refers to a redeemer in terms of a savior. So the prophets began to speak about this same redeemer we're talking about here, the, the redeemer of a slave, the redeemer of a land, the redeemer of the family with a deceased husband, this redeemer began to be spoken of by the mouths of the prophets as a savior. So look at uh, Isaiah 48:20 with me, and, and we'll just look at one example of that so you can have an idea of what I'm talking about. Isaiah 48:20. Isaiah 48 and verse 20, go forth from Babylon. So here is the people of Israel who are uh, exiled in this foreign land. Flee from the Chaldeans with a voice of singing. Declare, proclaim this, utter it to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. So somehow the prophet sees the people who have been exiled are really like uh, prisoners of a foreign nation. Uh, A redemption of some kind is the thing to explain their release and their ability to go back to their land. The Redeemer is seen as a savior uh, many times by the prophets by the time we get to Isaiah. So in Ruth chapter 2 verse 3, we're introduced to Boaz who is a great man. He's, he's shown to us as a, really, he's a type of Christ. Um, we have this concept of type and anti-type and, and Boaz's nature, Boaz's generosity, Boaz's person is somebody who is a shadow-like type of the person of Jesus Christ. And we see this kind of a person being uh, revealed to us here in the book of Ruth. We see that he's kind. He offers to care for and protect Ruth. And 
He is a redeemer to Naomi and Ruth in the legal sense. So when when Naomi says he's a kinsman redeemer, what we are understanding is, is he actually is qualified legally to do the redeeming that we've been speaking about. He is a person who has the right relationship to redeem. So Ruth actually had been working for him, uh, or I shouldn't say working for him, but he was in his field there at 2.23, chapter 2, verse 23. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest, and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. I noticed when I saw that 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 was some period of time that I had no idea what that meant, but that was from April to June about. That's, she was there for about three months harvesting every day, so they were able to store up some some food for the coming season. I don't know how long that would last, but they do have a little bit of food now. Now we're really going to look carefully at redemption. Chapter 3, verse 1. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now, Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? So they're raising this, this point and this issue again. In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself, anoint yourself, put on your best garment, go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down, you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go in, uncover his feet, and lie down, and he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, All that you say to me, I will do. So here we have uh, Naomi beginning, it seems, to kind of realize the, the, the providential situation that God has put on her hands. And so she tells Naomi, or she tells Ruth what she needs to do in order to see if this is what God actually has in store from them. The one needing redemption cannot redeem themselves. The one needing redemption Naomi and Ruth cannot possibly redeem themselves. They don't have the means. They're too poor. And so she tells him, go to our Redeemer. And this is how you should approach him. So let me talk to you for a moment, just a few minutes about Christian redemption. That is, I want to help frame now from a few passages, mostly in the New Testament, talk to you about redemption in regards to salvation, and then we'll go back into the story of Ruth and finish this story about her. So, a moment ago, I mentioned the fact that men are born servants of and slaves to sin. Remember the passage we read in, uh, in John 8? Whoever sins is a slave to sin, John 8, 34. What that means... If you, if you just think about this for a minute, what that means is men are born with death in their future. What is the future of a man who is a slave to sin? Well, he's a slave to sin in this life, and then he dies. That's it. All their life, men fear death. Look at Hebrews 2.14. Hebrews 2.14.
Inasmuch then, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. As the Lord Jesus took on the same kind of flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and, listen, release those who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Men who are slaves of sin are in bondage to sin and death. All of their lives, they fear death. Now, it's interesting because you and I know people who do not fear death. Christians shouldn't. A lot of Christians don't. Some Christians do. Every non-Christian should be terrified of death. Every non-Christian should be terrified of death. Why? Death is the end. It is appointed for man once to die and then face the judgment. Death ends a man's opportunity to know God and make peace with God. Knowing that death is in every single person's future, knowing that death is, is in our future, ought to impact how we live today, shouldn't it? It should affect how we live. Your last day is coming. And unfortunately for many, many people, they get to the end and they look back and like, wow, I'm not very well prepared for this. I haven't really lived in a way that, that really has me ready for this. Now, redemption. Redemption is necessary. Redemption is absolutely, utterly necessary if you are to face death with hope and joy. When you have redemption, when you understand redemption, you can face death with hope and joy. Redemption accomplishes different things in this regard. And so let's look at redemption in regards to a price paid to release sinners from slavery to sin. Redemption is a price paid to release sinners from the slavery to sin and it also places that person who is now a Christian, it places that person into the kingdom and service of God. Look at Titus 2. Titus 2.14. Titus 2.14. New Testament redemption, biblical redemption, says, who gave himself for us, the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. Redemption you see what redemption does in the verse we just read? Redeem. Redeem us from every lawless deed. Purchasing you from every lawless deed. If you are not purchased from every lawless deed, that means you are owned by the lawless deed. And what does it mean to be owned by your sin? It means you will die. It means you will face your death 
and you will die a sinner's death. Redemption releases the believer from the curse of the law because the Redeemer takes the curse instead of the sinner. This is a great verse about redemption. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Back up just a little bit here. Galatians chapter 3. And we'll look at verse 13. Galatians 3, 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The Lord Jesus Christ is hung on a tree, becomes a curse in the place of those The curse of the law is having to die because no man can keep the law. No man can keep the precepts of the law. The curse of the law is your death. You cannot do it. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us instead. Redemption takes away the threat of death, and it promises life. The Redeemer will be in the light to come to greet the redeemed. Death can only offer hell. Death can only promise hell. It promises loneliness. It promises weeping. It promises darkness. But in Christ, the redeemed will see him and will be raised with him. There's two great passages. Like I said, I've been reading Job. Job 19.25 and Psalm 17.15 say very, very similar things. Let's look at Psalm 17.15. The one in Job is where Job says that he knows his Redeemer lives and he will see him at last. We'll see him and not another. And Job is so filled with strength and joy at knowing that he will see his Redeemer at the end. This one in the psalm, Psalm 17, is David's knowledge of the same. The Redeemer is the reason that you and I will escape death and see eternal life. Look at David speaking about this at Psalm 17, 15. As for me... I will see your face in righteousness. He's not going to see it in misery. He's not going to see it in weeping. He's not going to see it in gnashing of teeth. David says, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. It's amazing that the old covenant believers have this understanding and this knowledge of the rich, rich joy of redemption. It is a payment to redeem men from the law's condemnation. And are the law's servants. But they are redeemed and made sons and they're adopted. Look at Galatians 4 with me, please. Servants of the law, servants of death, redeemed. Galatians 4 verse 3. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. What's bondage mean? It means slaves 
Okay? But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem. That's to make a payment. To redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. What is the privilege of being redeemed? It's being made a son. You're not a, a, a slave of the law and of death. You've been made sons as you've been redeemed. Given the rights of sons, not the right. What is the right of the lawkeeper? Death. The one who is under the law can only hope in death. The one who is under Christ as a son of God has a hope of eternal life in Christ because he's been redeemed. He's had the payment paid for him. The redeemed are taken from the realm of the law's condemnation. They're removed from the law's condemnation. Hebrews 9.15. Hebrews 9.15. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. Now, this is how redemption takes place. By means of death. For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. There is a payment made for the transgressions under the first covenant, which means everything that is an offense under the law of the first covenant is what his death is meant to pay for. It is a redemption. For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that, listen, those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So out of the hopelessness of transgression, the hopelessness of the law, the hopelessness of sin and death, they're given the promise of an eternal inheritance. What is in the future of the redeemed? As they look into the future, as they anticipate what is in store for them, they see a rich inheritance. They see hope. They see joy. They see glory. Redemption rescues hopeless slaves of sin. Christ rescues hopeless slaves of sin. He rescues men from the bondage of the law. He satisfies God's perfect justice with his redemption. The blood of Christ, whose worth is more valuable than anything, I don't know if you think about the blood of Christ as something being valuable or not, but the blood of Christ is more valuable than anything pays the just requirement of God. Just the legal word. Just. It's right. It's proper. It's legal. He pays the just requirement of God's law for those who fix their hope in and on Christ. Redemption is in Christ by his shed blood. Look at 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. 1 Peter 1. <clears throat> 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, you weren't paid for, 
You weren't ransomed. Your ransom wasn't something corruptible. Your payment wasn't something corruptible. Like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You see how this very life blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is redemption. It's a payment that secures for the one who has hope in Christ something rich, You are in the poverty of your sin and trespasses. You're in slavery to your sin and the law. But the redeemed are purchased out of death, purchased out of the curse of the law. God's justice is one of his great perfections. God's justice is amazing how perfect it is in his justice. And yet it must render, it must and can do nothing but render a charge of guilty to every man. Every woman will be guilty before the judge because of his justice. And by virtue of that truth, you will be forever separated from life, separated from God, separated from light and life, unless you are redeemed. Unless you have been made just. And the blood of Christ, the life of Christ, is the redemption price. Because it satisfies the justice of God. The blood of Christ is an answer to this need of God's justice. In order that the servants of law and death the slaves of sin and death, those rightly condemned under the law would be adopted as sons, made servants, made friends, made at peace with the just God. He is just. And yet God rightly and faithfully and fairly punished sin on Christ in the stead of the redeemed. Redemption is so costly. The Son, the perfect God, the perfect Son, the perfect Jesus Christ paid redemption, which is the glorious transaction of the gospel. That is what transforms a man or woman out of darkness, out of slavery, out of death, and into light and life. Now back here, let's just look at at Boaz for another moment or two. Let Let me wrap this up for you. As I said here, Boaz is a type of Christ. In 3.11, chapter 3, verse 11, Boaz is responding to to Ruth's spotting where he lays down at night. And and now my daughter, he says, when he discovers her and, and speaks a couple words for her, he says, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request. For all the people of my town know you are a virtuous woman. She hasn't done anything even the least bit suspicious or, or, or shady or questionable in, in what she has done here. He and the people of their community know that this is a very 
uh, upright sort of woman. And Boaz is, is zealous. He's, he's eager to redeem her and her family and her family name and their inheritance. So at 3.13, we take note of his care to do it properly. Verse 13, stay this night in the morning. It shall be that if this other man who can redeem you does, then he will. So what Boaz knows is there's another person who can do the redeeming and he's closer. It's more legal for this closer man, this closer redeemer to redeem if he wants to do it. And Boaz is very insistent that, that this would be done properly and justly, legally. So he, he tells her that this other man, if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good. He says, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. Lie down until the morning. So we see that he, he's, he's willing he is qualified. There is one more closely qualified, so he's willing to uh, submit to that aspect of the law there. So let's move down to chapter 4. We'll skip some of this other part. You can read it at home this evening. It's really, you'll want to. It's just one of the most beautiful stories in the Old Testament. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 4, Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. Behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, sit down. He came aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down. They sat down. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab, sold a piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So in, in Boaz's careful attention to what is right and proper. He makes the offer available to this other man and this other man will be willing to do it. He'll actually profit from it because he can farm this land and, and make money from it. And so it's not a bad thing. He is not willing to do it. Why? It's costly to him. It's going to cost him something that he is not actually willing to spend. He will take his own inheritance, his own wealth, whatever he happens to be. Let's just say he's a millionaire and the, the, the firstborn son is the proper heir. But if he takes on this woman and has children by then, then those children are also going to be sharing the inheritance. And he's not willing to share his inheritance with this woman. Now, what a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who has redeemed and adopted paupers. You and I bring nothing. You and I bring nothing to the wealth and inheritance of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does he do it for? He does it for love. He does it for generosity. He does it for kindness. The Savior is a good Savior, and, and he's, he's pictured so wonderfully by Boaz. At 4 and then verse 9, at chapter 4 and verse 9, we see the, the people of the city... <coughs> 
happy about what's taking place here. In verse 9, Boaz said to the elders and all the people, your witnesses this day that I had bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I've acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from whom from among his brethren, from his position at the gate, you are witnesses this day. And all the people who are at the gate, the elders said, we are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, which is a, they're asking God's blessing for her. These uh, Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom tomorrow bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. And so we see the, the town approving and the town offering their blessing. And then shortly after this, the story tells us that Ruth has a child. And this is really one of the great uh, cruxes of the story. So read just a little bit further here. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And the woman said, women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. You have been redeemed. Your hopelessness has been turned back into hope. And may his name be famous in Israel. May he be to you a restorer of life. Is your redeemer a restorer of life? Is your Redeemer the one who has given you your name? Is your Redeemer the one who has given you hope? May he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons. And Naomi took the child, laid him on her bosom, became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. So this is where the story really takes quite a dramatic turn in terms of where its blessing goes. Where does the goodness of redemption go? What are, what are the great ends of the redeemed in the family of Naomi and Ruth? Through this redemption came the family through who comes David and the Christ. Through this redemption is uh, one of the great honors in, in Old Testament history. Boaz paid a redemption for a new life. Boaz paid a redemption that ends in, in, in a new life for this family and hope for Ruth and Naomi. We've read quite a few passages in the New Testament about Redemption. I'm just going to read you two more. We've already read them, but I'm going to read to it again. Galatians 4, verse 3. Even so, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. That's children spiritually. You are worldly. You are lost. You're in bondage to the world and the spirit of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. The incarnation of the Lord Jesus had to be a man in human flesh so that the man could accomplish the redemption of men. You are a man creature. 
You are a man sinner. The sins of men are the things that must be redeemed if there will be justification. A lamb cannot atone for a man's sins. It is a lamb. So the Lord Jesus taking on flesh and being born a man is so important. God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law so that in his sinless adherence to the law, he could become an appropriate sacrifice, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. The son born of a woman came to redeem those who were born under the law, who were cursed under the law, who would die under the law, who would go to hell under the law, who would never know eternal life. But the Redeemer came and redeemed. The Redeemer came and redeemed. Do you love redemption? Do you love justification? Do you love the God who saw the perilous dilemma of his own righteous justice that must be exercised against the sins of men who devised in his unfathomable wisdom a way to justify sinners by paying a redemption of the perfect lamb. Do you see the glory in the words of Romans 3.23? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justification is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It is the greatest truth in the world. It really is. You and I must revel in this truth. Do you know this redemption? Do you know what it means to be lost and hopeless in sin and be given hope and sonship in the redemption of Christ? Do you know this redemption? We seek it by seeking forgiveness, forgiveness of our own sins, repenting of our sin, putting our hope entirely in the only one who could save us. I I hope you've enjoyed this chance to ponder on these things today. Let's just close in a word of prayer and then stand. We uh, we do have one hymn to sing, and I hope you'll enjoy singing that with us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for your great word that, that helps us understand how we have been transferred from a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of slavery and a kingdom of death and made sons and given an inheritance. How we thank you and praise you in his name. Amen. We do have one.